We read the word of God together in the book of Nahum, one of the minor prophets, chapter 1. I could have chosen a chapter from many of the prophets for this particular Lord's Day, Lord's Day 4, which speaks of the just judgment of God against sinners. I just chose to read from Nahum this morning as it very concisely sets forth those truths. So let's read that together, Nahum chapter 1. The burden of Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Alkoshite. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth, and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies." What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, Though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now will I break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy goods, gods, will I cut off the graven image and the molten image, I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. We read God's word that far. Let's consider together this morning the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 4.
found on page 4 in the back of the Psalter. Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? Not at all. For God made man capable of performing it, but man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means, but is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will punish them in his just judgment, temporally and eternally, as he hath declared, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Is not God then also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, his justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, on the basis of God's word, Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us the dreadful predicament of fallen man apart from Christ. In our modern time, man has tried hard to dismiss the dreadful truths taught in this Lord's Day from his mind. He has tried to dismiss them as mythical, unreal, and unfit in our scientific age. What, man says today, a divine law and justice and an eternal judgment? What, he says, you believe in a real devil and in original sin? What? You believe that there is a real place called hell with everlasting damnation and torment upon those who break God's laws? Many people around us have been deceived to think that these beliefs are the mere superstitions of an earlier age of human development, that these are the mere religious remnants of our evolutionary past, that it is high time that we, the human race, rid ourselves of these superstitions, that we get rid of these beliefs, that we leave God behind, and that we move forward in our evolution as a species so that we can create a brave new world in which we can live however we decide and however we are pleased without the fear of damnation. As Nahum wrote in this book long ago regarding the city of Nineveh, which 
In chapter 3, verse 1, he calls the bloody city. And in verse 4, speaks of the multitude of its whoredoms, calling it the well-favored harlot and the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. I say, as Nahum said about Nineveh in chapter 3, verse 1, Woe! to that bloody city. Woe to our generation, which thinks that it can do away with God, which trumpets that God is dead, which says that there is no everlasting damnation. There is no devil. Woe unto them. Not only the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, but also God's own word itself teaches us that there is a divine law and justice, that there is a real devil, and that original sin is no mere myth. God's word teaches us the reality of a place called the lake of fire, the bottomless pit, and the outer darkness, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth forever. But depraved man, including our old man of sin, wants to escape from this place without Christ. Depraved man does not want to flee to Christ, but wants to escape from damnation and be able to live in this life however he pleases without Christ. And that's why we have Lord's Day 4 of the Catechism. Lord's Day 4 sets before us the objections of sinful fallen man in which he tries to wiggle himself free from the requirements and the judgments of God. But the Catechism shows the futility of all these arguments, and it does so in order to point us to our only hope in life and death, which is Christ. So let's consider God's just dealings with fallen sinners First of all, his just law, and then his just judgment, and finally his just mercy. The first question and objection that the Catechism sets before us is this. Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? What does God require in his law? We have seen that God requires perfect obedience, and nothing less. He requires that we love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. But we have also seen that we fallen sinners are so corrupt that we cannot render that perfect obedience to God. And yet, God continues to require it from us even though we cannot give it to him. And so man comes forward with this argument. That's not just. The question of the catechism is really a statement. The depraved, fallen man is objecting to God and saying, that's not just. It's not just for you to require of me what I cannot do. That's not fair. And then man argues to his fellow man, God ought not to do that. God ought not to require from me 
what I cannot do. God ought only to require of me what I am able to do, nothing more and nothing less. And therefore, if I am able to perfectly obey his laws, then fine, God may require that of me. But if I am not able to obey his perfect laws, then God may not require that of me. So says puny man to Almighty God. This reasoning does not arise out of the desire for justice. This kind of an argument does not arise out of a heart that has a zeal that all things be done justly and righteously in this universe. This argument arises out of a heart that loves sin. It arises out of a heart that wants to enjoy the pleasures of sin and to do whatever is right in my own eyes. It arises out of a wicked heart that does not want to have to strive to give perfect obedience to God. This reasoning can also arise out of our own sinful flesh. Yes, even out of our own. In our sinful flesh, we do not want to have to endeavor and strive to keep all of God's commandments perfectly. But we want to have a little permission to sin. We want to have a little bit of approval from God that we can relax in our sins, that we can be at ease in our sins, and that we can settle for a good enough effort. We like to reason, and this reasoning comes out of our sinful nature. God does not really require perfect obedience of me, does he? God will be happy with me. God will accept me and approve me as long as I put forth a good effort, as long as I strive to do the best that I can. God will not make a big deal out of a little sin in my life, will he? God is not that kind of a God. He is merciful. He is gracious. He doesn't make a big deal. He's not uptight about a little bit of sin, is he? But the truth that we have to see this morning is that God absolutely does make a big deal out of even a little bit of sin. And God absolutely does require perfection, perfect obedience to his law, He requires that we love him with all our heart and all our soul and mind and strength, even though we cannot. He will not accept us and approve us and wink at us as long as we put forth a good effort. He will not consider us righteous if we fall short of the mark, even in one commandment or in one moment. He will make a big deal out of even what we consider to be the smallest sins. But doth not God then do injustice when he requires from us in his law what we cannot perform? Isn't that unfair? Isn't that unjust? Isn't it cruel of God to continue to require of us fallen sinners what we cannot do? Not at all, the Catechism says. It's not at all unjust. Why? 
because God made man capable of performing it. But it was man who, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. It's not God's fault, but man's fault that he is incapable of rendering perfect obedience. That's the answer of the catechism. God, as we saw last time, created man not evil but good. God created Adam and Eve in his own image, in perfect righteousness and holiness. He clothed Adam and Eve in the beginning with divine gifts, marvelous, beautiful, glorious gifts. And what were those gifts that the Catechism speaks of here? They were the glorious gifts of righteousness and holiness and goodness and love. Adam and Eve were created with inherent righteousness, inherent holiness. They were created with the capability of obeying God perfectly. Every moment of every day, with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. They were also created with the capability to disobey God, as we saw. They were created with that lower form of the freedom of the will. There is a higher form of the freedom of the will that we will receive in heaven in which we will be incapable of sinning for all eternity. But God created Adam and Eve with the capability of sinning. That's true. But he didn't create them with an inclination to sin, but with an inclination to obey, to love God and to be righteous and holy and good. But man chose to disobey, and we chose to disobey in him. That's the truth of original sin. And when Adam chose to disobey God, he made himself unworthy of those marvelous divine gifts. He made himself worthy of what? Death. He made himself worthy of being stripped of those divine gifts and left for dead left for dead, also spiritually speaking, spiritually dead. And all of his posterity, the catechism says, all of his descendants, all of his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and all of us human beings who have descended from Adam and Eve have received from him that worthiness of being spiritually dead, of being stripped of those divine gifts, of being incapable of obeying God. We brought that upon ourselves. But God did not change. God remained the same. He remained the same in his law, in his commandments, in his requirements. He never changed because his law didn't need to change. His law was good and pure and holy and perfect when he told us in the beginning to love him. That was a perfect law. When he said to love him with all of our hearts and strength and soul and energy and mind, that was a good commandment. And he did not now revoke it just because we can't do it. He still requires it, even though we cannot do it. Sometimes illustrations can be helpful. Imagine a man who was given $1 million by a wealthy benefactor. $1 million. 
And he is free to use that money either in the service of his benefactor and thus in that way to enjoy a good life or if he would choose to use that money not in the service of his benefactor but for his own pleasure, then he must pay it back as a debt. That man takes the million dollars and decides very foolishly not to use it in the service of his benefactor. But he spends every last dollar on himself. He spends all of the money on the slot machines at the casino, on prostitutes and drinking. He buys a new yacht to cruise around the Caribbean with his friends and to enjoy partying and riotous living. And then the benefactor comes to him and says, what have you done with the million dollars? What? You spent it all on riotous living? You squandered it on yourself, on selfish pleasures? Where is it? It's all gone, he says. It's all gone. I can't pay it back. But the benefactor says, you must pay it back. You must still pay it. You must still pay the debt. Is he unjust to require payment just because the man can no longer pay it? When it was the man's own fault that he selfishly and foolishly squandered it all on carnal pleasures. And we can even go this far. It is just of that benefactor to require payment from his children and from his grandchildren and great-grandchildren and on down the line of the man's generations after him until that man and his family have paid every last cent back. Would we not recognize that he's just to require that? So also, God is just to require of us human beings that we obey his commandments because he created our first father with the ability to obey, but he chose not to. And he represented all of us and was responsible for all of us so that when he made that choice and deprived himself of those divine gifts, we made that choice and deprived ourselves of those gifts. But God has not changed. God still requires perfect obedience. Remember, this first objection does not arise out of a heart that longs for justice, but a heart that loves to sin. We humans love to sin. What we want is to be able to sin, to do what is right in our own eyes. But this first objection falls to the ground before the holy majesty of God. A second objection is brought forward. Will, not, will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? And once again, we must understand that in that objection or question, there is really a statement, a belief, an argument. And the statement is, surely God will not punish 
such disobedience and rebellion? Will he? What is the punishment that God inflicts upon the sinner for his sins? The punishment is death. God said to Adam in the garden, in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And God has been repeating that all throughout history and all throughout the scriptures. You find that truth running right through the scriptures from beginning to end. The wages of sin is death. The punishment for sin is death. Death is punishment for sin. And not just physical death, but eternal death. Not just bodily death, but spiritual death everlasting death in body and soul. But would God not be unjust to punish a finite man with such infinite punishment? That's really the objection. The darkened sinful mind of man once again objects. And in this second objection, what is he trying to do? He's trying to escape from the judgment of God. He's trying to escape from the punishment that he deserves, the everlasting punishment, so that he can continue to live how he pleases without the fear of hell. Some people claim that God would never punish finite man with infinite punishment, infinite punishment punishment. After all, man is finite. Man is limited. Man is just a tiny, puny creature who lives a short little life of 50, 60, or 100 years. And all of the sins that he commits, what do they amount to? They amount to nothing but finite acts, finite thoughts, finite words. Small, aren't they? They're just small in comparison to the infinite God, and in comparison to infinite punishment. How can it be just and fair for God to punish a man forever for a sin that he commits in time? Is that not a cruel and unusual punishment? Once again, an illustration. Man will argue, you would not execute a man, you would not put a man in the electric chair and put him to death simply for spitting on the road, which might be against the law. But you would execute a man for murder. The punishment must be equal to the crime. Is that not simple equity and simple justice? Does not man recognize that? Does not God practice that? Is not God just? And so they claim God would never punish a person forever, for all eternity, for a sin that was committed in time. What then? Well, if they hold to the Bible in any sense whatsoever, they come up with other theories. And they have to twist the scriptures to have those theories. So there is the theory of annihilationism. They look at all of the passages of Scripture that teach that God will punish sinners, that God is full of wrath and anger against sinners, that God will destroy them and there will be everlasting punishment. And they start to philosophize and reason what that might mean. And they come up with this idea that perhaps it means that God will simply annihilate sinners. 
That is, those sinners who do not have faith in Christ. Perhaps God will annihilate them so that they cease to exist. But the scriptures simply do not say that. Nowhere do the scriptures say that God will annihilate the wicked for their sins. Others come up with other theories, such as universalism. This, too, is a denial of the everlasting punishment that God gives to those who reject Christ. This philosophy says that perhaps after this life, God will give sinners a second chance. That everybody will be given a second chance. That God will offer to sinners in hell a second opportunity to accept Christ and enter into the kingdom. And the teaching of universalism says that God will not stop in all the long ages of the future to attempt to woo, to persuade, to convince the sinners in hell to accept his love until at last every single one of them does and enters into the kingdom. That's universalism. But the Heidelberg Catechism and Scripture deny those theories. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means. But is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will punish them in his just judgment temporarily and eternally. Notice, God is displeased, terribly displeased, not only with our actual sins, but our original sin, the sin that we did in Adam, and also the sins that we do in our lives. And he will punish them. He will punish our sins your sins, my sins, in his just judgment. He will punish them temporally. That is, in time. In this present time, he will punish those sins. And eternally, in the future, in the unending ages of eternity, he will punish our sins, yours, mine, and the sins of all men, as he hath declared. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. This teaching of the Catechism is based on God's Word. God has revealed throughout the whole Scriptures, beginning in the Old Testament, that He punishes all wickedness, and He is just to do that. We see that very strikingly here in the book of Nahum. We see that really throughout the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and go right through the minor prophets, you hear repeatedly the message of the prophets that God is a just God who punishes sin. Nahum writes this about Nineveh, that bloody city, that mistress of witchcraft and whoredom. God is jealous, chapter 1, verse 2. And the Lord revengeth, The Lord revengeth and is furious. 
The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Verse 4. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry. There we hear the sound of his temporal judgments, his temporal punishments. Bashan languisheth and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. There will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes and judgments in the earth. The mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Nahum clearly teaches that God does not wink at the wickedness of Nineveh. And the other prophets point out that God does not wink at the evils of Babylon and Assyria and Egypt, of Edom and Moab and Ammon, and all the ungodly nations, and all the wicked of the world. And also God does not wink at the wickedness of Israel and Judah. But God is filled with wrath and indignation against it. Some people think that the New Testament presents God in a softer light. But the New Testament presents him as a God of love, whereas the Old Testament emphasizes His wrath, but that is simply not true. Both the Old and the New Testament emphasize the wrath of God against sin. In fact, our Lord Jesus Christ, more than anyone else, taught the reality of hell. When you read through the Gospels, you hear again and again about hellfire, about damnation, about that place where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die, but continues to eat at the souls of those who are there. Our Lord Jesus teaches that at the last judgment, he will say to the goats, depart from me into everlasting punishment prepared for you. Our Lord Jesus teaches again and again about the outer darkness and the everlasting judgment. He speaks of the fact that we are not to fear man, but we are to fear God who can kill body and soul in hell. Jesus teaches that. Jesus, the loving Savior. Jesus, the merciful Lord. Jesus, who loved us and loves us, also teaches repeatedly about the reality of everlasting punishment. How can that be just? How can it be just for God to punish a finite act, a fleeting thought, an idle word spoken carelessly and foolishly, or a bad decision made at a point in time with unending punishment? This is one of the great mysteries. We should not pretend that we understand and are able to fathom the depth of mysteries like the mystery of hell, the mystery of everlasting punishment. We are to believe it because God teaches it in his word. And the catechism brings forth to us an explanation of how that might be, how it might be explained that God justly punishes sin 
with everlasting punishment. And this is what the Catechism teaches. In question and answer 11, God is just, therefore his justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with extreme everlasting punishment of body and soul. The argument of the catechism there is this. You must not measure the seriousness of sin and what sin deserves by the sinner, by the nature of the sinner, by the finiteness of the sinner. But you must measure the seriousness of sin and what it deserves by the God against whom we sin. He is the most high majesty. There is no such thing as a trivial sin. There is no such thing as a sin which is no big deal. Every sin is committed against the most high majesty of the infinitely glorious God. That's how you measure the seriousness of sin. Then we will never think to ourselves, how can it be that one sin deserves everlasting punishment? The answer is, because that one sin was committed against the infinite glory and majesty of God. God is infinite. And God is infinitely worthy of love. He is infinitely worthy of perfect love and devotion and obedience. One sin committed against him is worthy of eternal punishment. But is not God also merciful? Does not the same scripture that teaches the justice of God also teach the mercy of God? Now this last question of the catechism can be viewed as one final gasp one final argument of the sinner to try to escape, an appeal to the mercy of God. Of course God is merciful. The scriptures teach that just as emphatically as they teach that God is just and his wrath burns against sin. Even in this dreadful chapter of Nahum, Even after we read that God revengeth, he revengeth and is furious, we read in verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. We read in verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. God is indeed merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous, in love. But we may not and must never think that God's mercy causes him to act unjustly. 
God's mercy does not trump his justice. God is not merciful on the one side of his being and just on the other. It's not as if his mercy and justice are in an arm-wrestling match with each other, and the mercy always wins. So that God always backs down from his justice. God always revokes his justice in the end, and God, in his mercy, does not act justly. That's not true. He is merciful and he is just, at the same time, in perfect harmony. An illustration. How miserable is the human judge who, facing a criminal, and let's just use it as an, as an example, a criminal who is guilty of sexual assault against children and who has been doing it for years and years and years and who has now been accused and brought before the judge. How miserable is the judge that looking at this man all the evidence stacked against him, all of the proof there that he's guilty of these horrible crimes in the name of mercy, says, I let you go without punishment. You can go free. You can continue to live your life in society. I will not punish you. I will not send you to prison. I will show mercy. We all recognize that kind of mercy is wicked. That kind of mercy is no mercy. That mercy is unjust. There needs to be justice. There needs to be punishment. God is merciful, but he is also just. Now, in that illustration, who is that man? Thou art the man. You are, and I am that man. We deserve punishment. We do not deserve for God to say, I forgive you and you may go free without punishment. God is just. Now, people of God, Behold upon the mountains the feet of them that bring good tidings and publish peace. God said through Nahum that he would not show mercy to Nineveh. That wicked, bloody, abusive, war-mongering people who had no use for Christ and felt no need for repentance. He would bring vengeance upon them. We know, too, that God will not show mercy upon the Antichrist of the last days or the devil and his hosts, but will cast them into the lake of fire with all those who follow them. But we also know that God will show mercy on those whom he will show mercy. He will show mercy 
through Christ. Beloved, let us not stray from the truth by believing the popular idea in the church world today that God will simply accept me as I am, that God will simply approve me as long as I put forth a good effort, and that God does not make a big deal over my little sins. Rather, let us cling to the mercy of God in Christ. Let us cling to the cross of the Son of God who came into this world and took our sins upon him, our great sins and our so-called little sins. He took them all upon him, and he shed his blood. He took upon himself the punishment that we deserve, the extreme, everlasting punishment of body and soul for every single one of our sins. Cling to the cross and the mercy of God that is a just mercy, a mercy of God revealed in pouring out all of that wrath that we deserve on Christ instead of on us. God does indeed set us free, but not without punishment. He sets us free by pouring the punishment we deserve on Christ. Every day when we get up in the morning, we should ponder the amazing mercy of God in Christ. We should lay our eyes on Jesus as our only hope in life and death. There is no escape. We cannot argue our way out of the situation. We cannot come up with reasonings to escape from the punishment we deserve. But God has made a way of escape. Cling to Christ. And you see, beloved, when we cling to Christ, when we gaze on Christ in all of his beauty on the cross, we will never make such foolish arguments. We will never say, It's okay if I settle for good enough. My sins are not that big of a deal. But we will be filled with thankfulness, joy, and the desire to obey God perfectly. That's our desire, to obey him perfectly to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Even though we know that we can't, as long as we live in this world, that's our desire when we gaze at Christ. And then our hope is for the day when we will obey him perfectly, when we will have no more sin, but will love God in the unending ages of eternity. Amen. Our gracious and merciful God, our just and righteous Father, we give thanks and praise to thee for thy glorious gospel. We are humbled 
as we hear of our helplessness, as we hear of our sinfulness, as we hear of our depravity and what we deserve. But we are filled with such joy, gratitude, and hope when we hear the preaching upon the mountains of the good tidings and the publishing of peace, that in Christ we have hope. May our hope in Christ fill us with joyful gratitude to strive to keep thy commandments until the great day when thou wilt bring us into eternal joy.